You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The NFL news has been fast and furious the last couple days. We're going to get into some more fallout from yesterday's big news, Deshaun Watson's suspension, but we've got some interesting stuff to get into with this Dolphin story that disappeared and has now come roaring back. We've also got lots of baseball trade deadline to get to it. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. We're going to talk to Buster only later, and we will get all the details on baseball's big moves. But quickly, Courtney, you always want to hear from Tim Kirkshin when something big happens on the diamond, and the Padres trade for Juan Soto is big. The biggest ever, says Kirkshin. I think this is the biggest trade in Major League history. And when you talk about transactions in history, it's right there also. This guy is 23 years old. He is the best hitter in the game. He has an amazing track record already. And the future is limitless. And now the Padres, once Tatis Jr. comes back, can go Tatis Jr., Soto, and Machado, one, two, and three in the order. And they just picked up the best closer in the game in Josh Hader. This is all because A.J. Preller, their general manager, is a lunatic. And I mean this, I don't know, I mean this in the nicest way. Yeah. He is absolutely brilliant. He is wildly competitive. He never sleeps. And he said, we can win the World Series if we make this trade. Yeah, and and we'll talk to Buster Courtney about the power rankings potentially changing with that move. We're also going to get to see DeGrom back. Uh, somehow the Cubs decided to make their players cry and hug for a week straight and then not trade any of them. We'll get into that. Um, quick baseball thought before we move on. So the day after Soto had rejected that contract from – the Washington Nationals, 15 years, $440 million. I remember like kind of parsing through the options, and we had heard that the Padres were serious contenders. And you've got to look at the reason why. At that time, so like July 19th, 18th, their OPS with runners on was 736. So it's 20th in the majors. They were 25th in home runs, 29th uh, in OPS at home. Like they had all of the reason to do this. Everything pointed statistically that they needed that power back into their lineup. And now, you know, on the cusp of this dead trade deadline ending, they just traded for Juan Soto, for Josh Hader. Um, they're going all in rather than just like kind of remaining status quo. And it has been a long time mm -hmm. since they were in the World Series. And I find it, th this New York Times article I saw earlier, I had no idea about this. Their last World Series game that was scheduled was a game seven against the Yankees um, in New York, uh, October 25th, 1998. So they got swept in that World Series and they never made it to that game. Apparently that was also the day that Juan Soto was born in the Dominican <laughs> Republic. So how about everything coming full circle Amazing. for the Padres? And now they're a team that certainly thinks that it can it can go all yeah. in this year. And, you know, good for them for being aggressive at the deadline. I like seeing we'll this see with teams works. that we don't typically see do this. I love that statistic. We'll talk more to Buster only about it. And again, remember, Mets Phil 7 Eastern tonight, Jacob deGrom making his season debut. Uh, still plans to opt out of his contract at the end of the year. We'll keep an eye on all of those stories. But let's get to the breaking NFL news. The NFL stripping the Dolphins of two draft picks, suspending owner Stephen Ross for tampering with Tom Brady and Sean Payton, a $1.5 million fine, and some other punishments along with this. And Adam Schefter was on Barton Hahn to break it down. 
The league <laughs> found that there was conversations, but didn't find anybody corroborated, didn't find the right context. Didn't say it didn't happen, but didn't find enough evidence to prove that it did, that it was serious, to essentially make that the focus of the discipline that was handed down today to the Dolphins. When you look at the release, it was more about, in my mind at least clearly, when Roger Goodell says that this is the most egregious violation of tampering uh, between a team and a player and coach under contract, I, I don't recall ever seeing that in print, and I don't recall a team losing a first and third round draft pick with the owner being suspended and fined a million and a half dollars for tampering with personnel that's under contract. So again, they the league said that it investigated Brian Flores' claims. It didn't say they weren't true. It just said basically that there was no evidence that that was a significant issue and nobody could corroborate it. Yeah, Courtney, that's Adam Schefter speaking to the part of this that had a lot of interest for folks was Brian Flores accusing Stephen Ross of asking him to lose on purpose, offering to pay him to tank. The NFL says, oh, they I think we're just joking. Everybody disagrees on the tone that he used when he said that. So they do think that the team definitely tampered with Tom Brady and Sean Payton while they were under contract with other teams, but they refused to accept that there was actual attempts to tank, at least intentionally. Yeah, and that's what's so frustrating about Stephen Ross's statement that he put out today after this whole thing went down and he got suspended through October and they got stripped of two very high draft picks, that, quote, the independent investigation cleared our organization on any issues related to tanking and all of Brian Flores's other allegations. No, it didn't. Not in the <laughs> slightest. Like, they were hardly cleared on that tanking issue. The investigation found that Stephen Ross, on several different occasions, expressed like you know the belief about uh, the upcoming 2020 draft that should take priority over the team's win-loss record like this says that in its findings so it's hardly like an exoneration for Stephen Ross and the Miami Dolphins here and on top of that like you know this has the, the allegations that Brian Flores levied against the Miami Dolphins like as Adam Schefter said in that statement like, they didn't say it didn't happen. They didn't say that what Brian Flores said was completely null and void and that it was a lie. They just kind mm -hmm. of danced around it and didn't really address it in terms of the actual findings of what they had in, the, in their report and using that to punish Stephen Ross. So to me, I feel like that's still out there, and, and it's not just up for debate. Like, it's very clear that the NFL, you know, danced around this to be able to levy punishment against Stephen Ross on something more tangible that they could probably more quickly prove. Yeah, I mean, this has been a weird story all along, and we've talked about it on our show. When we did two-a-days and we talked to the Dolphins and the Bucks reporters, we kind of said, hey, what's, what's the deal with this whole Tom Brady retiring so that he could be a player owner for the Dolphins, but then it doesn't work out because Flores sues the team so that he unretires, it comes back to the Bucks. And why aren't we talking about it? Well, part of what's so strange about this is the Dolphins shoot themselves in the foot in a way that's going to strip them of the ability to draft first round next year, which could, if they find that Tua Tungavailoa ain't the guy, be a high draft pick with a lot of quarterbacks available to replace him, and now they've lost that because of this. And in doing so, Courtney, it sounds like they were trying to set up a situation that was very unlikely to happen, even if they did convince Brady and Flores hadn't 
uh, sued the team. Jeff Darlington was on the Noon Sports Center talking about how, I, I, I don't know if that's the sound we have here, but uh, we do have some Jeff Darlington sound where he talked about how it would have been extremely unlikely for them to be able to pull this off even if they had convinced Tom Brady. Let's see if we've got that. There was wording within the ruling that Steve Ross was having conversations about prioritizing draft positions over win-loss record. Right. That is true and certainly something that, that merited the punishment that the NFL handed down. I just want to clarify, when I say that he wasn't found, when, when he was exonerated about something, it was the fact that they found no evidence and no witness contended that he offered the $100,000 per game. Right. Had, he, right. had that right. been found out to be true, that was a career-crippling situation where potential ownership would have had to be taken away. So that's the only delineation right. I'm trying to make here is that this was something that could have been massively severe, and at least in that regard, it was not. The idea of playing, I believe personally from my conversations, was not as um, far down the rabbit hole. And for the reasons I was even putting up there on Twitter, like they hadn't even gotten to the point where they realized that it wouldn't have been able to happen. Uh, that that they would have had 32 owners would have had to vote to allow Tom Brady to be able to be a minority owner and a player. That wasn't going to ha- I mean, first of all, there's no way the Glazers, the Bucks team that would have just gotten jaded would have done it. Robert Kraft likely isn't saying that's cool, nor is Woody Johnson, who he'd be playing twice a year with the New York Jets. So was it close? It was close to happening where he would have had a minority stake in the team. Was it close to where he was playing? Not even if it was close in his mind, it wasn't close to a reality when it comes to practicality. That was on Canty and Carlin at the end there. Yeah, it just feels like it was a moonshot that wouldn't have happened anyway, and they cost themselves a bunch of money and picks and otherwise for it. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Protect the stuff you love with renter's insurance. Visit Progressive.com. We'll get back to the Dolphin stuff. A whole lot more to get into with that. But coming up, we'll continue to try to make sense of the Deshaun ruling, Deshaun Watson ruling next. And guess at what could be next for the NFL. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Spent a lot of the day yesterday talking about Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson finally learning of his suspension. Six games without pay, no fine, and a lot of people parsing the ruling, Courtney. And the more we've had time to sit with it, um, the more troubling I think it is when people don't take the time to read it at all. And I'm seeing that a lot. So I I just want to clarify right off the top here that it says in the ruling that The NFL has carried its burden to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Watson engaged in sexual assault as defined by the NFL against the four therapists identified in the report. It also says that they believe that he is a danger to the safety of others, that he should not get massage therapy from anywhere except for in the facility. And it seemed to say, almost admonish the NFL, that because of precedent, She could go no further than to offer up six games, which is the most ever for someone with a nonviolent assault like this. Now, Courtney, the nonviolent part is a sticking point for a whole lot of people. The The CDC defines violent sexual assault as any sexual touching where consent is not present. And I would argue that pretty much anyone that has any affiliation with 
uh, sexual assault organizations or has been a victim would argue that any touching without consent is violence against someone. And that seemed to be a really big sticking point for her in deciding how many games she could give him. When I heard Matt Jones, who is a lawyer and an ESPN radio host, there on the rejoin, and he's talking about like Sue L. Robinson, who's a former U.S. District Court judge, and she was appointed the league's disciplinary officer this year, um, carrying out kind of like her responsibility in, in interpreting the law and the bylaws, basically within the the context of what the NFL's laid out, like. I get it. She's going off of the language that is there and, and literally trying to go black and white on this thing. But this is a case that has a ton of nuance to it. And it should in situations that involve sexual assault should always not be taken as a one size fits all. And that's what I think is so troubling about this, mm-hmm. because the I just don't understand. Like, Why does the NFL get to determine what is violent sexual conduct versus what is nonviolent sexual conduct? Because in reading the 16 pages of this report, it's basically telling you that because there was no penetration, like because there's no penetration, truly, that's, that's what this is going down to, because it, there was no, nothing that justified the grounds of rape, that, that it's nonviolent sexual assault, which if we even have the term sexual assault in this, is that not egregious enough? And they've used she used the word egregious in her findings. Right. Is that not does, is that not like harsh enough to determine to, to warrant more punishment than six games? Like what it, it's sad where your brain has to go, Sarah. Like, man, I what I wonder what it would have taken for him to get twelve games or right. even, you know, an entire season. Like well, it's how much failure. damage he would have had to have done to someone beyond what he already did, um, what's being alleged against him. For him to actually have gotten like a suspension that many thinks he think he would have deserved. It's a failure of process because the NFL has made the baseline suspension six games and has only previously given three for quote unquote nonviolent offenses. She said that she didn't think it was fair to players to offer up more egregious sentences without fair warning in advance, which is patently false and ridiculous that any player would say, well, I was going to sexually assault 20 plus women, but now I won't because it's 12 games instead of three. Uh, It's absurd. I don't know if though her intent there was to point out the flaws in the CBA and the collectively bargained six games that is the baseline and that there had only been offered up three in the past to quote unquote nonviolent acts. Again, I think our definition is mind-boggling, and to your point, it wasn't penetrative, and maybe she feels like you have to physically hold someone down, but anyone will explain to you that if a strong professional athlete has you alone in a room and forces his penis on you, that is sexual assault, regardless of whether you are physically held down. Um, and there was at least one complainant who said that he forced her to give him oral sex. I don't know if that's one of the, the cases that, that, he, that she heard. That's the other thing. Um, the lawyer for the uh, accusers went on ESPN today and said she didn't even hear 12. Uh, the NFL didn't even meet with 12 people. They only met with 10. There were more women willing to speak to them. They chose not to. Some of the women that did speak to the NFL said they asked them what they were wearing. They were accusatory. They... A perpetuated rape culture. So again, these are the people who are trying to present a case, which brings us back to Courtney with the flawed process where the NFL is still essentially the prosecutor here, even if there's an independent judge. So she has to hear the case presented by a league that has a horrific history when it comes to these kind of crimes. 
And then she has to apply the punishments decided by said league that in the past has been woefully inadequate in dealing with crimes of this sort from its players. It's all a mess. It's set up to fail. And Andrew Brandt uh, was on KJ and Max this morning and addressed what we just talked about with the nonviolent language. Judge Robinson agrees with the NFL. They've met their burden of proof. He's a predator. He's egregious. They're sexual assault. That's in the opinion. And I'm reading this and I'm going, wait a minute, how we get into six games with all this? The way it reads, it's going to be a year plus. And then I see the determination where it turns on a dime that this is nonviolent sexual assault. So I guess they're distinguishing. They don't mention any names from the Roethlisberger, Elliot, Kareem Hunt, Josh Brown, Ray Rice, because those were, quote unquote, violent. And they say the most given out by the NFL for nonviolent has been three games. And we hear that's Jameis Winston for what he did with an Uber driver. So I'm trying to figure out like everyone, so where does this turn to nonviolent? I'm sure this is triggering to so many that have reached out to me saying that, of course, it's violent. Of course, what he did is violent. And it screams out for an appeal. Do you think there'll be one, Courtney? I do. I think that the NFL made it clear earlier this summer that it was going to go after a punishment that was far harsher than than six games. So I do think that they will appeal by the time the deadline rolls around on Thursday. Uh, also, to, just to, just to a point that Andrew Brandt made there, we're making the we're allowing the NFL to determine what is violent versus what is not because there was not a closed fist striking somebody um, that this is somehow less violent. The NFL CBA goes through 2030. It can be ratified for something like this at any time. So I think that that's where the conversation needs to shift to. If they ha- are having trouble identifying this language and applying it to, to the current situation and reality, they need to go in and change that language. That's exactly what I said yesterday. This is a failure that is set up by a system that will never appropriately deal with crimes of this magnitude and it needs to be changed so that you cannot rely on previous precedent and previous failures to continue those failures in the future coming up an eight-time pro bowler is on a new team for the first time in his career great opportunity to win a championship he'll talk to us next spain and fits the podcast it's spain and fits sarah spain with you as always courtney cronin filling in for fits on espn radio the espn app sirius xm channel 80 espn radio is presented by progressive insurance Joining us now to talk about camp with his new squad, it's Rams linebacker Bobby Wagner. I'm going to have to get used to saying that, Bobby. Uh, How's the transition been? Your first time with another team since spending the whole career in Seattle before this. Yeah, I still have to get used to it, too. Sometimes when they (laughs) ask me to break the huddle, I almost say Hawks. But um, it's been a nice adjustment. I think uh, the group has been uh, really cool. The guys have been fun to get to know. The coaches are great. Um, obviously you can't beat this weather. So um, I feel like it's been a, it's been an easy transition for me and my family's close. So I'm good. That's awesome. And we're going to ask you about the new call of duty game coming out in a second, but I just, as far as training camp goes and being part of a new team uh, after so many years with Seattle, what is it like now being in a defense that has Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey and all of those big names? It's been fun. It's been fun to uh, like really pick their brain, pick everybody's brain, because it's uh, you know those are guys, those are the guys that that um, you know everybody knows because they're big names. But there's so many young guys and so many guys that's been here that's that's made plays over the course of their career and they're just getting started in their career. So 
you know, I'm excited for, for those guys' names to get out there. I'm excited to be, like, a part of this team. And, like, the practice is just always so fun because it's like a competition who can get to the ball the fastest. Yeah, let's talk about the differences. I'm always fascinated by guys who spend their whole career in one place and then go somewhere else because um, you're you're clearly a veteran with a lot of status, but you're also the new guy. So what have you had to get used to at Rams camp? Um, I just I think it's, um, you know, with Pete and, and the Hawks, it was kind of like, you know, you have Teletroop Mondays, you got off Tuesdays. Everything was so consistent, so – We've been doing the same thing. I've been doing the same thing for like 10 years. So I really like the schedule, um, the verbiage. Um, that's probably be the biggest thing um, for me to, as, as a, the difference. But, uh, you know, it's been fun because I think, you know, it's something new, something that you can learn. Like even like the playbook has been fun to like learn something new versus uh, before I was just kind of more focused on studying offenses because I kind of, you know, I was in the same system for about 10 years. So, it's been nice to um, have to learn another defense again and understand that the, the ins and outs of that defense. And, and uh, you know, I think this is going to allow me to make a lot more plays. We, you talked about, like, some of the names that you're going to be playing with in this defense. And a name now uh, that's going to be in head coaching circles and interviews is Raheem Morris. We know that he went through that process mm-hmm. this past off season and was able to stay in L.A. And, and, and be part of what you guys are building this year. What what intrigues you the most just about his scheme and the way that he calls plays and the situation that it's going to put you in to make more of those plays? I think one uh the thing that stood out to me the most when I first got here was the relationship that he had with, with the players. I mean, everybody, everybody rocks with him. Everybody likes him a lot. And – I think that's one of the biggest things when it comes to coaching is being able to to get the best out of the guys that you you're coaching. So that's the first thing that stood out. But you know, as far as the scheme, just the way that he thinks, just the um, how smart he is because he's he's um, he's done offense as well. So he knows their mindset. He knows um, what what they're thinking on certain downs. So you know, he'll time up a blitz right when you know the offense is least expecting, just because he has their their mind. So I think it's just. It's nice to be around somebody who's seen both sides. Um, and, you know, he, he's put us – even in that practice, it's been, you know, when we've had those free periods where, you know, he kind of just calls the plays unscripted. Um, it's been really, really fun. And, and, you know, it's been a lot of guys in the backfield. Talking to L.A. Rams linebacker and Super Bowl champ, eight-time Pro Bowler Bobby Wagner here on Spain and Fitz. You're going to play your former team on December 4th. What kind of emotions, what kind of feelings, what kind of vibes do you anticipate that day? Is it the home game, or I think the December fourth one is the the home game, right? We play them here. Yeah, the home game. Yep. Yeah, I think for me, I'll probably have more feelings. Um, the one where we go down to Seattle. Um, yeah. I think the first one will just be competitive. I think it's just you know you want to go out there and you know prove the team that kind of gave up on you um, that they were wrong, but. Uh, I think, you know, going down to Seattle and playing in front of those fans will probably um, be the one that kind of stands out to most of me. A whole lot of revenge game storylines that people can draw up looking at this schedule as it pertains to you. I mean, Christmas Day, 
trying to get after Russell Wilson. I mean, I'm sure that you've been asked about that 11 times already, but we want to ask you about it again. I mean, when you think about the memories that you had playing with Russ, and now you actually do get to hit him. It's not that he has the red jersey on in practice. What are your thoughts just like with, with that on the table coming up? Um, I think it's going to be fun because I think, uh, like you said, we've been going at each other for 10 years, and it's been, uh, you know, the practice has been intense. You know, there's been a lot of times where, you know, we've came close on the goal line or came close on, like, third down, and, you know, we had to let up because he had a red, uh, the red jersey. But, you know, to be able to tackle him, I think it's going to be fun. But on Christmas, it's going to be, you know, even better. I think that's a game that, that would be fun um, to kind of play him for, you know, something that's real more, more so than practice. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, he's a great competitor, um, one of my favorites. So uh, it's going to be fun to go against him. Bobby Wagner is with us, former Seahawk for all of his career, now with the Rams looking to maybe get a Super Bowl champion ring to add to his previous one. But you haven't completely left Seattle behind. I loved seeing this story that you said back in December when you were still with the Seahawks during the middle of last season that you were going to take a bunch of students to Silicon Valley and teach them about business and, and learn more about venture capital. And you went ahead and did that recently. Uh, in July, even after you had had, had made a, a deal with a new team, so tell me about why that was important to you to follow through on that. Um, well, I just wanted to keep my word, and you know, I think around that time, uh, a lot of people make a made a big deal about my dislike of mayonnaise, and so <laughs> I thought it was a, a a cool opportunity for the media to kind of shed light on something positive. And so, you know, at the time, I thought I was just going to take nine. Uh, nine young men and women down to Silicon Valley, but I ended up taking around 20, uh, if not more. And, you know, I kind of expanded it from just Seattle. You know, I got some some from Seattle, some from uh, the Inland Empire, and some from Utah State. And so it was all, like, places that I had touched up, up until this point. And it was cool to be able to give those those kids the opportunity to kind of uh, see, see a world that I didn't get to see until I was well into the league. And so... Um, you know, I'm hoping that I expedite their process um, faster than, uh, the, than my process and, you know, maybe they get to where I'm at quicker. We have a real quick follow-up on the mayonnaise thing. Are you cool with it if it's a chipotle aioli? Because I think that kind of glow-up is really something we need to discuss. Like, mayo is disgusting, but if you mix it with stuff and call it an aioli, I'm all in. I mean, if you can hide it, then cool. <laughs> if not... I I just don't do mayonnaise. Like is it mayonnaise the texture, not, the visual, the flavor? What's the issue it's, here? It's just it's just nasty. It's it's not good. <laughs> it's not to be on anything. I, if I walk into a refrigerator, I just don't trust the person that's cooking. Right, right. So, um, I mean, I agree. I just yeah, said, why don't you throw a some chipotle people, salsa? A bunch of people were mad at that. It's good. Yeah, just mix ranch and ketchup. You're fine. It's the same there thing. There you go. It's better. <laughs> For what it's worth, yeah. Bobby, I'm on your side. I think all yeah. forms of mayonnaise are <gasps> disgusting, and I can't be told otherwise. Wow. Um, but that's fine. We can leave Sarah out of this conversation. <laughs> um, a, yeah. About a week ago, your yeah, team— We'll just introduce her to other stuff. <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll get her on and some other stuff. She hasn't expanded her mind. <laughs> exactly. Um, about a week ago, your former teammate, K.J. Wright, got to retire as a Seattle Seahawk after 11 seasons, watching that press conference, super emotional, and, and his thoughts thinking his father uh and everything that went into his long career what's your favorite memory of playing with him uh, i think my favorite memory of playing with K- kj had to be um the dallas game where 
Um, the week before, we had got beat on a play. It was like a crack and go. Larry Fitzgerald scored. Um, and so the next following week, um, uh, the Cowboys ran that exact same play. And KJ knew what it was. And so technically on that play, it was the corners guy to have. But KJ knew the play, and so he basically guarded the receiver for the interception and in end zone. And I just think like that play just like symbolizes just how smart of a person KJ was on that field, and it's it, it like showed a lot of the young guys. And I'm pretty sure Coach Carroll used it as a, an example for like what happens when you watch film, like the plays that you can make. And so, um, you know, I definitely thought that that was cool. Well, we're so excited to see what happens in your new spot, and we need to ask you quickly about this sneak peek of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Uh, this is a video game you're going to get a, a look at at training camp. What you can tell us about it? Yeah, so I got to, to play the game first. Um, it was great. I brought my brother, so we were playing together. I had more kills than him, so if you ever run into <laughs> him, just let him know that. Um, but, now nah, it's fun. It's a way to, like, really like stay connected with like some of my teammates like one of the first things i did after i played was uh text uh quandre Diggs because he's a super uh, super huge fan of call of duty and um for him to know that i played the game before him he'll be real salty so um you know i'm excited for when it comes out it comes out october 28th and so um yeah when everybody when it comes out you know i hope to see everybody get it and hopefully play everybody as many people as i can i guess we're not going to let you dog your brother without at least acknowledging someone who is competition to you. So who's your biggest competition so far? The biggest competition uh, probably is my brother, I would say. My brother and my nephew. I'm guessing you haven't played Kyler Murray sure. yet because I heard he's big into Call of Duty. Uh, that's, that's, that's what the I word haven't. on the street is. Nah, I haven't, I haven't <laughs> played him. Uh, Bobby, but I'm pretty sure I got some people that can beat him. There you go. Okay, well, the, the challenge is out. We'll have to give Kyler a call. Hey, Bobby, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this season. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bobby Wagner, Rams linebacker. You can follow him at BWags with a Z. And maybe when the new Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 comes out, you could challenge him. See if you can, see if you can take him down. So many stories, so little time. We'll do Quickies next. Quickies, Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, hanging out with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Going to talk about the big baseball moves coming up in about 15 minutes here with Buster Olney. Got to get to that Soto deal and what the Cubs are doing, causing a bunch of tears and hugs and then not trading anybody, or at least not the guys we thought. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, and we got a lot more NFL stuff to get to first. When there's too much news and not enough time, we got to do quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Start with some tough news for the Broncos. Wide receiver Tim Patrick suffering a torn ACL in his right knee. He is out for the season. Courtney, this has been bad luck for the Broncos, this particular injury, this particular position for a couple years running now. It stinks. Like, Tim Patrick was, like, due to probably break a 1,000 yards this season with Russell Wilson at his, his quarterback. I mean, we saw a similar injury last year uh, that hit their receiving court early. I think it was Cortland Sutton. I mean, they've got – they've had so many injuries, so many ACLs. And for a day that's supposed to be celebratory, given their new owner 
Lewis, uh, Lewis Hamilton's now part of their ownership group. Yep. This is a big blow for them. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not it's not even their only ACL injury either. Darnia Crockett also had one as well. Uh, Demaria Crockett, yeah. Demaria. Yeah, they're running back. Um, t- yeah, I mean, two two in one day. Uh, just terrible luck and for, for Russell Wilson and his weapons. And also, like you said, this could be a huge season for Tim Patrick, and it's such a cool story. Undrafted free agent, was on the practice squad in 2017, earned his regular season playing time in 2018, and had a breakout year last year. So then he gets this great quarterback to play with, and this happens. Just a, a, a real bummer. Um, mm-hmm. Two straight excellent seasons, just got a three-year big extension in November, and would have had his first year under that contract and with a great quarterback to play with. Such a bummer. All right, next story. Quickies. While we're talking injuries, Cowboys receiver James Washington out six to ten weeks with a foot injury. And, man, does that receiving core look weak. In fact, Mike Tannenbaum was on Get Up saying they need to sign someone and now. I want to control his rehab. I want him to learn the offense so he can hit the ground running. And in all seriousness, guys, I got to think that Aaron Rodgers – is reminding the Green Bay Packer front office about OBJ. And let's face it, Van Jefferson just had knee surgery yesterday for the Rams. He obviously won a title there. I'm sure they're still very much in the mix. So if I'm Dallas, there was a big sense of urgency beforehand. But as Lewis pointed out, losing James Washington, I, if I'm Jerry Jones, I am all over OBJ right now. Yeah, I mean, you're looking around and you're saying, this is a team that went out ugly and if they want to be able to compete against an, a lot of improved teams across the league, they're going to need to have a better core than C.D. Lamb and a bunch of guys we haven't heard much about. And maybe the Denver Broncos are their competition now for Odell Beckham Jr. because of what happened to their receiving core. But, no, certainly the Dallas Cowboys need to do something. Michael Gallup is currently on the pup list. James Washington getting hurt at training camp and going to be out six to ten weeks. You know, it's C.D. Lamb and then Jalen Tolbert who had 2,000-yard yard receiving seasons back-to-back at South Alabama, but he's a rookie. Who is TJ Vasher? Who is Noah Brown? Who are all these other players, Sarah, that you look down their depth chart mm-hmm. and say, hmm, that's not proven production, and this is supposed to be the playoff or bust year for the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, I'm, I'd be worried if I'm looking at their yep. receiving core right now trying to figure out how we're going to add to it. And you're not alone. Dominique Foxworth and Harry Douglas both worried on first take today talking about the Cowboys' outlook. I still think they make the playoffs. I think that the Eagles should be considered the front runner for the division, but the NFC in general I don't think is incredibly competitive. It's not like the AFC. I think with Dak Prescott and with Micah Parsons, the the, um, contributions he can make on defense, and hopefully Trayvon Diggs can put up. I mean, he's not going to get 11 interceptions at corner back-to-back years. That's just unheard of. But if he can continue to turn the ball over and give Dak a short field, I think they have the talent to get one of the three wild-card spots. But the division should go to the Eagles, who are loaded top to bottom. Uh, I kind of had the Cowboys on that, on, that, on that line that's a little shaky right now because when you look at the three spots, right, and I look at these teams, I look at New Orleans, I look at Minnesota, who's going to be better. Um, you also look at the 49ers and the Arizona Cardinals and Dallas. So you have five teams right there that are basically going to be, be competing uh, for three slots. So it's going to be tough sledding. Yeah, tough sledding. That's going to be the uh, tagline for the Cowboys. Cowboys 2022, tough sledding. Uh, Next story. Quickies. 
Well, now that Deshaun Watson's punishment has been handed down, we wait to see if there will be an appeal. If not, Jacoby Brissett will have to be ready to go for the first six weeks during the suspension, maybe longer depending on what the NFL does. And he uh, he has said he is ready to fill whatever role is required of him. Keyshawn Johnson seems to think that he's capable of keeping things going while Deshaun is out. Why would I want Jimmy Garoppolo? Jacoby Brissett can play football, man. The hell do I want Jimmy Garoppolo for Jacoby Brissett is more than capable of taking care of business with this team, which is loaded, for six games. When I looked at their schedule yesterday, I figured they can go three and three, maybe four and two, the best possibly five and one. When you look at the schedule, what's Carolina? What are the New York Jets? What are the Pittsburgh Steelers? Like, this isn't 10 years ago. I would argue with anybody, Cleveland is a better football team from front to back than Pittsburgh. Even though Pittsburgh scraps and fights and claws for Mike Tomlin, Cleveland Browns a better football team, man. Hands down. Courtney Brissett, 37 starts, a record of 14 and 23. Have you seen enough from him to agree? I think that what happened in Indianapolis at the 11th hour of the 2019 season and the way that he handled Andrew Luck's retirement and stepping in right away gives me the belief that he can be a serviceable quarterback for you in Deshaun Watson's absence. Now for Cleveland, as Keyshawn was pointing out, they've got Carolina and the Jets back-to-back. We've got the Steelers, the Falcons, Chargers, Patriots. Those are all the games that Deshaun Watson is not supposed to be there for as the suspension currently stands. If you go 3-3 three and three in that stretch, you're in a good position. And I think Jacoby Brissett can get you there. Yeah. I think uh, there are folks from the camp talking about that they, they feel that his experience in Indy is going to serve him. He's going to be in a good spot and step up. Um, I agree with you. Uh, this is going to be a, a time that he's got a little more prep for with the expectation of Watson's absence basically since he's gotten there uh, and knowing that he was going to have to step up. They've been prepping him to be QB1 for the beginning of the season and potentially expected even longer. All right, that was Quickies. Coming up, we got to get to the baseball stories of the day. Buster only going to talk about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Tim Kirkshin called it the biggest trade in MLB history. Juan Soto to the Padres. One of just many deals that happened as MLB's trade deadline closed today. We're going to talk about them all now. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. And joining us now, ESPN MLB analyst Buster Olney. All right, your thoughts on the Soto deal. Do you agree biggest deal in baseball history? Yeah, so as I was sitting on the set when Tim said that, I was so (laughs) angry at him because I felt like, you know what? I've been saying for the last month, like, when Soto gets traded, it'll be the biggest trade of a young player since Babe Ruth. And Tim just out hyperbolied me. And I don't know what I'm going to do with that. (laughs) Look, and I, and I processed it, you know, as he was saying that, I'm like, huh. Now, I don't know if I called the biggest trade in baseball history, but uh, that is not overstating at all uh, the type of talent that Juan Soto is. You know, he, the, the, in doing my own hyperbole, I mentioned, this is like uh, getting making a trade for Willie Mays in 1955, early in his career, Henry Aaron in 1958. Mike Trout in 2014. That's how good Soto is. And if you look at the history of those deals, the team that acquires the superstar talent, uh, they always do well. And that's why you got to love it that the Padres basically 
handed their list of prospects to the Nationals and said, hey, take whoever you want because uh, we want this <laughs> great player and we want this unbelievable lineup. And how much fun it is that you have an owner in San Diego and Peter Seidler who wants to win. Think about that concept. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> the Padres are, are clearly going all in, trying to do just that this year. And, I mean, there was a trade. Their first big trade of the week was, was landing former Brewers closer Josh Hader. Um, what do you think about that trade? Before Juan Soto blew up the internet and blew up Major League Baseball with this, like how about that trade? How does that upgrade this Padres team? Yeah, and, and if he is – uh, what he's been for most of his time with the Brewers, they're getting arguably one of the best relievers in baseball history. Uh, you know, that's how good he's been. Now, I-, I will tell you that, you know, the Brewers, as a small market, mid-market team, they are constantly on the lookout to manage payroll. They've told teams over the last three years, if you have something interesting on a possible hater trade, we will listen. And hater in the last month, over uh, eight and a third innings, allowed five home runs. And that raised some red flags. And so it felt like, to some degree, like the Brewers are getting out while the getting was good. But you guys know how it is with relievers. They can go hot. They can go cold. Um, and someone, you know, who hater at his best is better than what the Padres had. I, I like that deal for them. Yeah, and I mean, getting back the guy who's right behind him in terms of relievers uh, makes you feel a little less terrible about losing that guy. Does the power ranking situation change for you in the MLB based on the deals we saw today? The Yankees shipping Gallo to the Dodgers, um, the Yankees getting Benatendi, Soto to the Padres, Hater to the... like. How do you see the teams that were at the top now that everything's settled? I think it drew the National League teams a little closer together. Uh, before this deal, I don't know if I would have told you, yeah, I think the Padres can beat the, the Braves or the Mets or the Dodgers, and now you can. Right? Uh, they already have good starting pitching. They now have a, you know, potentially a lockdown closer for the ninth. You have a guy in Soto who can hit great pitching in the month of October. Um, you know, I, I still feel like that any one of those teams nationally can win. I love what the Braves did. You know, they, Alex Anthopoulos, their general manager, made those incredible deals last year, you know, swooped in at the end, got Rysel Iglesias, the closer from the Angels, to augment what was already a great bullpen. They made a couple of other depth moves that I really like. I like what the Mets did uh, going up the trade deadline, adding some depth, and the Dodgers, you know, and a couple of things that they did, they also got better. It was interesting that most of the movement that we saw, especially in the last 48 hours, was among the National League contenders and not the American League. So Sarah and I were a little surprised before the show started that Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ are still Chicago Cubs, that they didn't get dealt at the trade deadline, that Wilson Contreras and his teary <laughs> goodbye last week was apparently all Several for not. teary goodbyes. Um, <laughs> so what are we supposed to make of this? Like, could, Was the asking price too high on both of them? Yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit with Contreras, a little bit like that scene in Almost Famous when the plane is going down and everyone is yelling out yes. their confessions. Yes. And then it's like, oh, no, we're going to be okay. <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you walk back? Uh, you know, the awkwardness about this particular situation is that I do think it revealed what uh, a lot of teams in the industry felt about Wilson Contreras. Uh, he, he was a big name, you know, three-time All-Star so idiots like me were talking a lot about him. But privately, what teams were telling me was his defense is a concern. It's not that he's in the bottom half of catchers. It's that he literally is among the two or three worst. I, I felt like that was overstated. 
But as the trade deadline played out, the Cubs kept a high asking price on him. And other teams, like the Astros, who yesterday traded for Christian Vasquez, said, no, we want someone who's better defensively. Uh, so it was a surprise that they didn't take advantage of the value. And, and what's, I think, probably disappointing, Sarah, you know, Cubs fans, is that y- y- you looked at this deadline as, okay, now we can start pulling some pieces in place and, and uh, you know, bricks for the rebuild. And it feels like a missed opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, and, and the question now is, do you extend him right away? Do you wait? Um, of course, we're all trying to figure out exactly what Ched Hoyer is doing. We're happy they're around. We're just trying to figure out what the plan is. Um, let's talk about one move the Cubs did make. David Robertson, one of the guys going to the Phillies, along with Noah Syndergaard and Brandon Marsh. What do you make of the Phillies making these moves? Yeah, and, and look, they're not going to get the headlines that the, the Padres are, the Yankees are for their moves. But I like what they did uh, because, you know, the biggest question about the Phillies coming into the year was their defense. We talked about how it was arguably the worst defensive team ever put on the field. Well, they pretty much addressed the, the key parts of that in this deadline. They got Sosa to play shortstop for them. He's a significant defensive upgrade over Didi Gregorius. And then Brandon Marsh, who they acquired from the Angels today to play center field, to put his defense into context, you know, last winter – the Angels spoke internally about moving Mike Trout to a corner spot and putting Marsh in center field because that's how good he is defensively. He's not great offensively, but you know they feel like that he's someone can really help uh, their defense and their pitching. And Syndergaard is a you know good acquisition in terms of depth. He's not the Syndergaard we knew in the past. He doesn't throw as hard. There's more contact. But I like again, you know, <laughs> in a world in which we see the Red Sox. Everyone, including Xander Bogart, is trying to figure out exactly what the plan is. And the Orioles, even though they're actually relevant uh, this year, deciding to sell two of their pieces, you love the fact that the Phillies are going for it. So Jacob deGrom is making his season debut tonight for the Mets. It's still 0-0 uh, with deGrom having five, five strikeouts so far. If he can stay healthy, which I know is a big if, how big is that for the Mets down the stretch of the season? Yeah, and and thanks for the update. I mean, in doing all the trade deadline stuff, that was the one part I'm like, I want to go watch DeGrom. (laughs) Um, Look, I mentioned the Padres. You could see them winning a a matchup against the Braves or the the Dodgers or the Mets. If you've got Max Scherzer, peak Max Scherzer, and you've got peak Jacob DeGrom, that means that the Mets on paper have an advantage uh, with their starting pitching. Now, I will tell you that, there, there are legitimate questions about DeGrom as he comes back because it's been a, a year and a month since he's pitched in a major league game. Uh, in his last outing that I saw in the minor leagues, it looked like he was throwing at about 80% effort, and I think everyone was sort of wondering, okay, what was that about uh, with other teams? Uh, you know, He mentioned uh, to reporters, reiterated again yesterday, yes, I'm definitely opting out of the deal. So I think there's just a lot of questions about what is Jacob DeGrom now is he going to try to dial back his velocity, try to stay healthy? Or is Kevin Plawecki, uh, the Red Sox catcher who played with, uh, with DeGrom in the minor leagues, told me, no, he's not capable of dialing back. He's way too competitive for that. You hope he's healthy because that would be a lot of fun to see Scherzer and DeGrom going one and two. Buster only with us. You can follow him at Buster underscore ESPN. We're out of time, so last question to you quickly. Is there a team that you look at and you say they really blew it by not getting something done at the deadline? 
The Red Sox are completely confusing to me. Uh, you know, they trade Christian Vasquez yesterday. I was, we had the Astros and the Red Sox in our broadcast last night. I was in that clubhouse. I have not felt a disconnect between a group of players and the front office uh, like I felt last night in a long time. And Xander Bogarts gave words to that effect today. You know, it said even after they added Tommy Pham and they added Eric Hosmer, if you're going to trade your catcher and then you add a first base, what exactly is the plan? Uh, you know, the Red Sox have demonstrated the last few years they wouldn't pay Mookie Betts. They apparently are not going to pay Xander Bogarts. They are miles away from an extension with Devers. You're a big market team. When are you going to start acting like a big market team again? Hmm. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes about the team in my backyard as well. And uh, DeGrom, that is appropriate, yeah. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, DeGrom hit 99, by the way, so we'll keep an eye on his performance in this game. Hey, Buster, thanks so much for the insight. No, you had a busy day. Appreciate the time. Thanks, guys. ESPN MLB insider Buster only at Buster underscore ESPN for all the good stuff there. Coming up, the Dolphins stripped of two draft picks, including a first rounder next year for tampering. How big will that be if Tua isn't the guy? We'll tell you next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Yeah, we, uh, we've been asking, whatever happened to that story where the Dolphins and Tom Brady were talking about a player-owner situation where he retired and we couldn't figure out if it was about Bruce Arians and him having a beef or something altogether way more complicated? Well, got a little bit of answers today, although, Courtney, so many more questions still about just what the Dolphins had planned and why and how they thought it would work out and how it's so greatly backfired for them. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. So there's a six-month investigation into the Dolphins communicating with both Sean Payton, who was still under contract with the Saints at the time, and Tom Brady, who was under contract with the Buccaneers. The league has decided that the tampering with both of them would result in a 2023 first-round pick and a 2024 third-round pick gone. Also, owner Stephen Ross fined $1.5 million stemming from the Flores racial discrimination lawsuit and also that he would be uh, incapable and not allowed to participate in certain um, league-related things for six months, and some other members of the front office are also now banned from certain activities and fined for a certain length of time. So, apparently, the Dolphins spent two years trying to get Tom Brady, first from the Patriots and later from the Bucks. They also potentially were trying to tank, although that part of the investigation didn't come up with enough official truth and official proof that they would uh, punish them that severely. And we heard from Jeff Darlington earlier that it could have been way more serious if they had indeed been found to have intentionally tanked. That's where things could have truly gone off the rails. At this point, still a pretty big punishment uh, for something that the league calls egregious and unprecedented, Courtney. And the league was apparently uh, looking into Stephen Ross's level of humor because they equated that I'm going to Brian Flores' allegations that Stephen Ross said he would pay him $100,000 per game that they lost in order to better their draft positioning in 2020. The NFL laughed that off as a joke and said, oh, like he was said that in jest. Like, how mm. can you prove that? Because apparently the tone in which Stephen Ross made those comments, uh, no one could agree on it either way. So the NFL was not able to do anything in regards to that. But Stephen Ross's statement that came out 
basically denouncing the NFL and not agreeing with this with this uh, his suspension through the next couple months and also losing their two draft picks 2023 2024 um, but also on top of that he said that the independent investigation cleared their organization of any issues related to tanking and all of Brian Flores's allegations that's not true like that's not true in the slightest because the investigation found that he like had expressed a belief that the 2020 draft was more important than their win-loss record the previous season to try to better their draft positioning. Tell me that that's not the NFL being like, yeah, we know what you were doing here, Stephen Ross. We just can't prove that you told Brian Flores, go ahead and tank these games and I'm going to pay you $100,000. Like for some right. reason, he was able to skate on that one, but certainly not able to skate on all of the things that were levied against him. Very well, clearly evident in the suspension. And also what's fascinating, Corey, is it feels like were it not for Brian Flores suing his own team, something we've never seen before, this might have worked? And then if it had worked, the plan for Brady to be an owner player seems basically impossible. We heard from Jeff Darlington earlier. You would need a unanimous vote from all of the owners, which would include the Bucks owner that you just tampered to steal him from. The Jets owner that's like, no, 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 we are so sick of playing Tom Brady. The Patriots, I mean, all of these folks who would have zero interest in allowing Tom Brady to go to the Dolphins and become a player owner, getting out of the contract that he had agreed to. So even if it had gone through without Brian Flores and his racial discrimination lawsuit, I don't know that the Dolphins could have pulled it off. So instead, they cost themselves a first-round pick next year that could be the guy that they would need to replace Tua with if things don't work out this year. And Jason Fitz, usual host of this show, but hosting Kenny and Carlin today, said as much. We have to understand what the Dolphins are up against this year. Like, there's an unbelievable amount of pressure this year on Tua Tagovailoa to go out and be great. This is a very good roster in an AFC that's stacked. So I could see a team winning nine or ten games and not making the playoffs. Now, all of a sudden, if you're the Dolphins, you may make it through this year and realize that you have everything you need, but you don't have your quarterback. Next year's draft is a very good quarterback draft, but you're going to want to be picking in the top four or five to have a real shot at one of those franchise-type guys to know that you can get your guy. The Dolphins with Tua are not going to be bad enough to be picking top five. They needed those two draft picks that they have next year. Theirs and the 49ers, also not expected to be a great pick, right? It's a good team. You need all of that leverage to try and move your way up. Losing that leverage has long-term consequence to the Dolphins at the quarterback position. So it's ironic that not landing Tom Brady could actually prevent them from landing a great quarterback in next year's draft. Yeah, I mean... Imagine that. They try to pull off this tremendous coup. They fail, and they screw themselves for the future as well. And now their plan B with being Mike McDaniel as their head coach. When Remember, Sean Payton was thrown into this mix too, and he's still sitting out this year. We don't know when he'll be back in coaching, but it was supposed to be Sean Payton and Tom Brady. Now it's Mike McDaniel and Tua Tagovailoa. It doesn't seem like Stephen Ross can truly be enthusiastic and sell that plan B all that well. Very clearly we knew what he wanted. So if this doesn't work out, this is an owner who is not shy of cutting bait really in that three-year mark. Two is about to be three years in as a quarterback, Mike McDaniel, after one year. If it doesn't go well, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Stephen Ross ends up trying to go back to the drawing board after shooting himself in the foot mm -hmm. by doing all of this stuff and missing out on a really good quarterback class in 2023. I'm kind of surprised Tom Brady 
doesn't get uh, punished at all for this because we know for certain it wasn't just his agent talking to them. Tom Brady met with Brian Flores on that boat, retired with the intent to pull this off, and then eventually tucked his tail between his legs and went back to the Bucks. It's kind of surprising that he skates on this. Yeah. I mean, this is the second time that he will have been caught in something that many would deem cheating. I'm not going to say it because my Menchies are already full, Courtney. <laughs> I already had thousands and thousands of people in my Menchies today for other things. I'm staying away from that. Awesome. Coming up, we're going to talk all sorts of NFL news, including Deshaun Watson, the Dolphins, the injuries, all of it next with Damian Woody. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fit, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, hanging out with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. So much football to talk. We're doing it all here on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Get a business insurance quote online in as little as six minutes. Visit ProgressiveCommercial.com. So happy to welcome in ESPN NFL analyst Damian Woody. Lots to get to on the NFL front today. Let's start with today's breaking news and the punishment for the Dolphins. First round pick, a pick next year, fines for Stephen Ross uh, in excess of $1.5 million for tampering with Tom Brady and Sean Payton. Uh, this story didn't get nearly as much pub as we might have expected at the time, and now it reemerges. What did you make of the NFL's findings? Well, listen, I think it's a couple things, right? I think, number one, my overall feeling, I felt like the punishment was, wasn't enough. You know, as a former player, the NFL always used to tell us that the, the, the higher up the hierarchy you go, the heftier the punishment should be. And so when you look at what the NFL doled out, you know, obviously the first-round pick this year and the third-round third, third round pick next year, and the, the million-and-a-half-dollar fine, that's a drop in the bucket to Stephen Ross. And so you're talking about you're talking about a, a, a owner and an organization that tampered not only once, not only twice, but three separate occasions. One time with Tom Brady when he was with the New England Patriots, again with Tom Brady when he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and then with Sean Payton when he was still under contract with the New Orleans Saints. That is unprecedented, and those are the words that Roger Goodell used, you know, in, in, in his findings that. They had the NFL hadn't seen anything like that ever before. So I just feel like the punishment doesn't match up with the, the words that were used in Roger Goodell's statement. Yeah, and I'm re I read through the statement, Damian, and I just cannot wrap my brain around the part where the NFL, in their investigation, they looked into the claim that Stephen Ross offered Brian Flores 100 k per loss and basically said that, oh, this is just his way of joking around. Mm -hmm. It wasn't meant to be taken seriously. <laughs> right. um, can we make this make sense? Because I'm not really sure how something like that is not taken with when the NFL you know, likes to grandstand about the integrity of the game and just suspended a player for an entire year for betting on the sport, that this isn't taken with the same sort of severity, or at least thought of with the same sort of severity uh, with Stephen Ross? Courtney, I can't even make, make any sense of it because it's, it's absolute nonsense. And you're also talking about, you know, in, in the statement where, where it says that Stephen Ross talked about the, the importance of the draft pick over winning football games. So how can you make that statement and not say at the same time, well, you know, he didn't really offer any money. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So, again, I'm going to say I thought the hammer should have brought down, should have been brought down a lot harsher 
on Stephen Ross and the Miami Dolphins organization. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight. We're talking to Damian Woody, ESPN NFL analyst. Let's talk to Sean Watson. The ruling comes down yesterday, and in the ruling, the judge says specifically uh, that she found that Mr. Watson had a sexual purpose, not just a therapeutic purpose, in making arrangements with these particular therapists. None of the therapists accepted his invitations to engage in further therapy sessions, find the evidence sufficient to demonstrate he knew or should have known that any contact between his penis and these therapists were unwanted, and therefore she finds that the NFL has proved by a preponderance of the evidence that he engaged in sexual assault. She also called him a premeditated predator who was a danger to other people. Knowing all of that, I ask you as a former player, we sort of just accept that once a guy commits any sort of crime and comes back to the locker room, everyone's got to be all chummy and be in it for the win. Do you think there are players, staff members, coaches who will be uncomfortable, massage therapists who have now been told that they have the sole job of, of working with him within that facility that, that will be uncomfortable with him returning when he does? Well, yeah, I mean, listen, listen, Sarah, there's a human element to this. And, and, you know, a lot of these guys in the locker room have, have wives, have mothers, and so there's a human component where you sit back and you look at the whole, the, the totality of this whole, uh, this whole situation, and guys are going to think, man, this is this is this is uh, this is not the type of dude that I want in my locker room. But at the same time, guys also know that players have a really good, uh, you know, have a really good way of kind of understanding control the things that you can control. And with that contract that the Cleveland Browns signed Deshaun Watson to, the most guaranteed money in NFL history, the fact remains that Deshaun Watson is going to be a Cleveland Brown. And so the players understand that it is what it is, regardless of how you feel about it. And I got to go about, you know, trying to do my job, even with him as a teammate. So he's got a suspension now of six games, and the NFLPA put out a statement on Sunday imploring the NFL to accept the punishment and not appeal what was handed down from Sue L. Robinson. Now we know that 9 a.m. Eastern time on Thursday is the deadline for the NFL if it wants to appeal this decision. Um, Do you feel like the league will go that route with Deshaun Watson or, or let it stay as it is? No, my, my, my overall feeling, I think the league will appeal it. Um, the league is, is a very reactionary league. It's very PR-based. And so with the ruling coming out yesterday morning, they've had a chance to digest it. It's not only here, um, you know, with the, with the you know, fans, think, but more importantly, the media, you know, the backlash from the media. So I would expect the league to, to appeal this and, and, and to try to show that the league actually cares about this topic because that's just the way they've always operated in that, in that manner. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin hanging out with you on ESPN Radio, talking to ESPN NFL analyst Damian Woody. Let's talk Broncos, the news of Tim Patrick and ACL. How big of a concern is this for that team and, and for uh, Russell Wilson in terms of weapons now that he's in Denver? You know, that's a pretty big blow for, for the Denver Broncos. This is that, that's the third ACL from, a, you know, uh, the third year in a row at the wide receiver position. You had Portland Sutton, uh, who tore his ACL, K.J. Hamlers, who's coming back off of ACL, and now Tim Patrick, you know, tears his ACL. So, you know, he was kind of like the reliable reliable wide receiver with all those other guys, you know, rehabbing and, 
trying to get through their ACLs, and now to you know lose him for the for the season, that's a that's a pretty big blow for that wide, that Broncos wide receiver um, position. Yeah, and the Dallas Cowboys too are also dealing with uh, getting thinned out at that position. We know that James Washington is going to be out six to ten weeks. He fractured his foot. Um, how much concern should there be over the offense right now, given it looks like it's CeeDee Lamb and then a bunch of names I don't know on the depth chart uh, at receiver for the Dallas Cowboys? Uh, it's significant. It's significant because there's just a lack of depth in that wide receiver room, considering that they trade away Amari Cooper, Cedric Wilson left via free agency to Miami Dolphins, and now you know Michael Gallup, is not, he's not going to be ready at the beginning of the season, rehabbing from an ACL. Now you're losing James Washington for a significant amount of time with that broken foot. So, you know, when you're Dak Prescott, you're surveying the, the lay of the land. You're talking about outside of C.D. Lamb, Noah Brown is the only wide receiver that he's thrown passes to that's on, that's on the roster right now. You're relying on a bunch of guys that are unknown quantities uh, in the wide receiver room. And just looking at it, there's not many options, you know, with guys just kind of on the streets. Maybe Odell Beckham Jr., but he's rehabbing the ACL himself. So I think Dallas is, a, is in a real bind right now as we move forward in training camp. Dallas is one of those teams that I'm looking to this season and thinking they will probably take a big step back. And that's no good following up the way they closed out last season. A lot of pressure on that coach, a lot of pressure on that owner in terms of father time, if you will. Um is there another team you're looking at this year that maybe we shouldn't have such high expectations for based on their offseason? I mean, listen, some people talk about New England Patriots, right? Josh McDaniels moves on to the Las Vegas, Raider, Las Vegas Raiders. And Josh, you know, Josh McDaniels had coached for 253 games with Bill Belichick. That's a long time. I don't want to undersell the, the importance of what Josh McDaniels has meant to that Patriots organization. As great as Bill Belichick is, he's the greatest coach, you know, in NFL history. Not having that play caller, that chemistry with your quarterback, that's a pretty big deal. So it's going to be, you know, New England is going to be an interesting place to keep your eyes on. We know that hold-ins have become the new norm across the NFL for players looking to get that extension on the final year of their rookie deals, and it's worked for DK Metcalf. It worked for Debo Samuel. Uh, we've got a couple more that we're still looking at. Roquan Smith, if you want to really call that a hold-in, since he's on the pup list right now, and, and Derwin James. But as it pertains to the changing landscape for players being able to not have to accrue the same sort of fines that they did before and also, like, be present. Like, how, how do you feel like this is changing just how these contract negotiations have gone at this point of the preseason and maybe seeing this become a trend for guys more more often than not in, in training camp? Yeah, I mean, listen, with the last CBA, the owners basically made it so you can't hold out. You can't hold out. The, the fines are too significant. Um, so this is the this is the next this is the next step I guess in the evolution of players trying to flex their power. It's just hold, you know report the training camp and holding in. And I think you're going to see this more and more as guys feel like they deserve their money. They're going to go and report and just hold in and, and just try to negotiate in good faith. So you know we've seen a lot of this happen already in training camp, and I think we're going to see more of that moving forward into the future. Awesome stuff, Damian. We know you're so busy, so we really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you guys for having me on.
Always awesome to talk to Woody. Uh, we got some more fun NFL stuff to talk to. We'll stay away from the injuries and the lawsuits, and we'll just get Dan Campbell sound. It's been a while. It's been a while since we had man Campbell sound, and we'll get it next here on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's been a fun Tuesday with Courtney Cronin, and we love to talk NFL when she's around. I wish there was some good Bears convos to have, but every day – she hits us on Twitter with the Bears offense looks like trash. Justin Fields made a lot of mistakes. This is going to be a terrible season. In fact, I saw someone today predict a 0-17 record for the Bears. And, Courtney, I refuse to believe that. I don't think – there's been so few instances of that. There's always some game that breaks a team's way where it doesn't appear to. Just like yes. the just like what we saw seen with the Detroit Lions last year. Um, they had games where we all thought that they could go 0-17 and mm-hmm. they end up beating a team like the Cardinals. The Bears are not going 0-17, I can assure you of that, Sarah. But it's been a long six days mm. and it's only the <laughs> beginning of training camp. I will see you next Tuesday at Soldier Field for practice. For FanFest. Yeah. Oh, I'm I so I will excited. be there and I will probably try to weasel my way into getting, you know, right next to you and, and following along with all the hard work. Uh, we do have some other teams to talk about in some more NFL quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Well, I guess only some of this is NFL, and it's someone you just mentioned in the Lions, Dan Campbell, hoping to lead his team to a better season this year. And he's going to do it Dan Campbell way. What would you say his T-shirt was today? said anti I just lost anti-fragile anti-fragile and had the lions logo I don't know if that's an official officially licensed t-shirt but I um, sure hope that's not this is the guy who was doing up downs last week (laughs) with the team which I cannot wait to see on hard knocks oh it's gonna be great if you missed it he taped up his wrist and he was doing up downs with the team now he has an anti-fragile t-shirt which Okay. Uh, it seems like basic B behavior, in my opinion, <laughs> for a coach who wants to really go out of his way to let everyone know he's tough. But he does always give us good sound. And a couple days ago, he gave us some great sound that we're still trying to parse as he talked about Joshua Reynolds. He's slippery, man. He's, uh, he's I call him the praying mantis. Um, he's a spider of death. He's just, there's something about him, you know. So, freaking serpent. So, I love where he's at right now. I was uh, reading on Defector.com, Sabrina Embler writing about this, and I think it was funny. She said, seems Campbell is either trying to, one, describe an animal that's real but whose name he's forgotten, two, describe a super animal chimera of real animals, like two monks who invent something, or three, rattle off a list of high school garage metal bands. Uh, All of those are great. I'm going to go with... um, Man, I mean, praying mantis is too simple. I like spider of death. Are you partial to that or frickin' serpent? Uh, definitely frickin' serpent for me. <laughs> and I looked up his numbers last year. So he was, you know, when he was at Tennessee, um, you know, he targeted 36 times, 19 passes that were caught for 306 yards and um, like two touchdowns. I don't know if that's serpent level, though. Serpentine? Uh, that's kind very, of agree- uh... in agreement with um, – with you on that maybe he forgot his name maybe and was trying to yeah. like rattle things off, which in that case, like just throw out like, the first name of players on first reference and don't give their last name. So Dan Campbell has to guess who you're talking about. And then he can come up with all these incredible nicknames. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wish we had uh, uh, 
no longer uh, felt like we couldn't go to Gruden impressions for obvious reasons, because anytime someone mentions something that's serpentine, that's, of course, what you think of and spider freaking death spider Y banana. Um, all right. Next story. Quickies. Switching to hoops. Uh, Jeannie Buss got hacked and in typical hacker form, they were selling PS5s, but even better, there were some very specific promises made on the hacked account. Huge announcement. Hello, Twitter family. I have three PS5 for sale for you guys. DM me to purchase. All proceeds will go directly towards charity, and everyone that purchases one will have the chance to attend a Lakers game. Okay, so we're really throwing out some pretty uh, compelling reasons to buy this PS5. Then she retweets herself and says, one more PS5 left. Last person that purchases it will get flown out to personally have lunch with the Lakers family. Whoa, what an offer, Jeannie. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm shocked that this is how you're using your account. Oh, what's that? You were hacked? Uh, okay, so the Lakers account, all 10.8 million people who follow it were treated to this message today. Lakers fans, my Twitter account has been hacked. Please do not engage with it or send any money. These are not legitimate offers. The Lakers will alert you when I'm back in control of my account. Genie bus. Oh, it's classic. It's a classic hacker scam. It's funny. She didn't claim that she was hacked when she sent that uh, like late night tweet on July 4th <laughs> talking about missing Kobe Bryant and taking shots at somebody, i.e. LeBron James, Ooh. in the organization. Um, she could have used that excuse back then, but... It's funny enough, like, I nearly got caught by a Twitter hacking scam this week. So I really? feel Jeannie Buss's pain. Yes. A friend of mine who has a verified account, quite a few thousand followers because he covers the NFL, um, I got a message on Monday morning, and I was, like, kind of bleary-eyed when I woke up, and it was, like, saying that, like, somebody had impersonated my account, and I needed to verify my information. And so I'm, like, clicking through this, I'm like, it, didn't, it took me until I was just about to enter my password in this being like, wait a second. Wow. Don't be an idiot, Courtney. Don't fall for this. But I almost did. I almost was a victim of being – I would have been hacked too. I probably wouldn't be doing the show right now because I'd probably be trying to get my Twitter account back like Jeannie Buss. Yeah, I mean – ESPN has even sent out some emails to staff to warn us of the many ways you might get yes. tripped up by those things. Yes. And you almost did it. Uh, Jeff Passan did, in fact. Uh, if you remember, our colleague Jeff Passan, right in the middle of baseball's biggest story, the lockout is ongoing. Jeff Passan is trying to figure out to cover every breaking piece of news. And right after tweeting that there was an agreement on the international draft, according to his sources, his account was hacked. His profile picture became a skull for the brand that I'm not going to name because I don't want to give them any credit. But it, it, the profile was changed to NFT enthusiast, MLB insider, father, husband. And he is frantically trying to get it changed while experiencing the passing of news that he would like to be breaking. And his colleagues and Twitter followers had a day with it, Courtney. I mean, it was hilariously terribly timed for him. There's nothing that's like worst case scenario and nothing would top that ever <laughs> being in the middle of a breaking news situation when you are one yes. of the biggest news breakers in baseball. And for that to happen, oh. it's like the perfect storm of calamity. I can't believe that story. Gosh, it's kind of like falling asleep while on camera while managing a baseball game. And it's the first <laughs> inning. 
You got a, you got so many more innings to go, Tony Larusa, who was caught on camera about to doze off during the first inning of the White Sox game. Perhaps that's why Southsiders have struggled so much this season, Courtney. You can't sleep on the job if you're a player or a manager. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.